Today's first scripture reading is from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7, page 631 in your pew Bibles. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Blessing is the reading of today's word. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the Acts of the Apostles, the 8th chapter, verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, and the two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, as for yet the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, the word of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. There is so much, O oh Lord, that we don't comprehend, so much we don't know, so many ways that a single day can be suddenly thrown completely off kilter, the ice, or a virus, or just a crick in your neck that makes it hard to get out of bed. And yet we delude ourselves into thinking that we are independent beings that are not reliant until we come into this place and your presence. And we find out that we are frail, we are faulty, but even more importantly that we are deeply loved as we are. And so, as we hear your word today, may the word we receive and the word we speak be the revelation of your grace and the proclamation of your love in this season of Epiphany. Amen. Epiphany, the season after Christmas. Epiphany, there's a word that we don't use very often. Uh, it is a very churchly kind of word. We do occasionally say, I had an epiphany, but uh, you tend to sort of think you know what it means. But uh, the word epiphany is actually only used in the Bible two times. There are a lot, of, a lot of churchy words that don't appear in the Bible. Trinity is one of them. The word Trinity never appears in Scripture. But uh, epiphany does. It appears twice. It, refers, it is referred to in both first and second Timothy, the letters to Paul's student Timothy, both of the letters that were recorded, 
Second Timothy refers to Christ's first coming and the fullness of his life and death and resurrection from Second Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. The grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the epiphany of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now the word is translated, the appearing, but the underlying Greek word is epiphany. Revealed to us through the epiphany of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The other time that the word epiphany is used in Scripture is to speak of the appearing of Christ at the end of time. So in 2 Timothy, he's talking about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, the whole context of what happens and begins at Christmas. And then the second time, he writes these words, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you were made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who testifying before Pontius Pilate made a good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords who alone is immortal, who lives in inapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and glory and might forever. Notice both passages use the word epiphany, appearing, in the full context of who Christ was and who Christ is to be for us. It's the full story. It applies to those moments when you're thinking only of one little frame of something and all of a sudden you get the big picture And you say, wow, I now have a better understanding of what was going on, the appearing, the epiphany of discovering it all. It's uh, epiphenai is the Greek word, from epi meaning grand, as we would say epic, epiphenai. And then phanio, which means the scene, is when we would say phenomenon, an epic phenomenon, the big picture. You're, You're sitting on a train at Union Station, and you're scanning your email on your phone, and you glance out of the window through the corner of your eye, and you think, oh, the train next to me is pulling out. And then all of a sudden you look up and realize, no, your train is the one that's moving. You had a little glimpse of something, you interpreted it one way, but then an epiphany occurs, an epic phenomenon, and you see the large context of what is truly going on, a shift, not of what's actually happening, but a shift of our perception on what is truly happening. Um, I thought it was this way, but now I've had an epiphany and I perceive it very, very differently. One of the ways that you know you've had an epiphany is not only that what you're looking at changes, but your understanding of everything that happened before also shifts. I've had an epiphany and I now understand what's been going on all along. We use the term to describe the season after Christmas as the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles fill in the details that contextualize why we made such a big deal about the little baby in the manger just a couple of weeks ago. Christmas without epiphany is just a cute story about new parents 
in a cattle stall with some shepherds and a few angels thrown in for special effects. But when we move into the season of Epiphany, we begin to perceive what the angels were talking about and that they weren't over-dramatizing the story. They were actually trying to help us understand what the story was. In fact, the first reaction of those who were there with the baby did not fully understand what they had witnessed. It was the epiphany of what was spoken to them that made them understand why they were there. And they resulted in another Greek word, euphoria. Euphoria. You meaning really, really good. Euphoria, experience. They move from an epiphany, I can now see what's going on, an epic phenomenon, and I now have euphoria, great feelings about it. Luke 20. Luke 2.20, the shepherds went on their way glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard as it was told to them. Or the Magi in Matthew 2.9, the Magi went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them till it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the the star, they rejoiced with great delight. They had euphoria, great delight. Epiphany leads to euphoria. The text goes on, and coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him, opened their treasures, and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What's the opposite of epiphany? I would suggest the opposite of epiphany is certainty and doubling down on the status quo. No, this new information is of no relevance to me. I'm going to double down on how things are certain that the world is the way it's supposed to be. It's what King Herod did. The Magi brought to him the epiphany of a newborn king, and King Herod said, absolutely not. He raged to preserve the order that he believed was right and he would protect. The Magi had great delight. They had euphoria. King Herod had a paranoid rage against change. So, you've come to the end of your Christmas season. Your epiphany begins with glorifying and rejoicing and moves into euphoria, great delight. How's that going for you now that Christmas is behind you, huh? How's your euphoria? How's your great delight? How's your reaction to the epic phenomena that was Christmas? Not so good. As Danny and I were uh, putting away Christmas decorations for what seems like the last year and a half, Danny had the great idea to say, we're going to go through all of the Christmas decorations and the ones that we haven't used for a number of years, we're going to throw out. Um, Except for, you know, this is really kind of cute. I don't know. We might be able to use it in the yard someday. You know, No, I thought you said you were going to throw it out. Don't throw that back in my face. Our post-Christmas euphoria is not necessarily strong as it needs to be, and yours may not either, because guess what? The world does not want an epiphany. Everything you experience mediates against you having an epic phenomenon that brings you great joy. And if you're struggling with finding great joy after Christmas, guess what? You have come to the right place, right here, because we can fix that. Or rather, the true declaration of Epiphany can fix that. The problem is there are way many more Herods in this world than there are Magi. 
if you got everything you needed for Christmas and it made you happy and you're euphoric over it, the odds that you're going to buy anything else are pretty low, right? So we need to work extremely high, hard to pull the joy out from underneath of you so that you can go back on Amazon and buy all that stuff you didn't get for Christmas because, you know, your friends and neighbors are not as generous as you thought they were going to be. The disciples experience after Christ's resurrection and ascension, they go back to Jerusalem. They receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and in their epiphany, they begin to preach the good news of the gospel. They have euphoria at Pentecost, and then they move on to another e word, euphoria. They go to euangelion, good angelion, good angels, angel, hmm, good angel, euangelion. Well, angels are messengers. So the disciples move from the epiphany of the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the euphoria of Pentecost, and then to the euangelion, the proclaiming of the good message to the world. What happens when they're in Jerusalem and they preach the Evangelion, the good message to the world? All of a sudden they run into Herod's. Stop being so joyful, they're told. Stop changing things. Stop telling people that they are valuable and they're loved. You're going to mess up the whole order of things. And things got so hot in Jerusalem that for the disciples they had to scatter and leave town, which is exactly what they did. So just like the Holy Family, when Herod got enraged, the disciples realized that when the local Jerusalem officials were enraged, they went out as missionaries, as Chris said, and shared the Evangelion, the good news, the good message to the world. Just like the Holy Family went down to Egypt, they scattered in the face of the Herods, but did not keep their mouths shut. The way the scriptures or lessons are arranged in the weeks ahead as we go through the book of Acts provide a progressive, a geographic epiphany that begins in Jerusalem and then spreads throughout Judea and up to Samaria and even to the rest of the world. It's predicted in Acts chapter 1 by Jesus before he ascends. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 8 of chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so today we have here from the 8th chapter of the book of Acts the acceptance of the good news, the euangelion of Christ, the epiphany of Christ, dawning on the residents of Samaria. Epiphany starts with euphoria. It moves to euangelion. It starts with great joy and it moves to good news oddly enough evangelion is the root of the word evangelical now there is a word that we use way too much isn't it evangelicals how did evangelion become evangelical in terms of enunciation it has to do with when you carve the letter u it's easier to carve like this and make it look like a V. <laughs> and so it ended up ev as opposed to euangelion was evangelion because in carving stone it's hard to carve that little circle, circular bottom of a U and people looked at it and said, well, that's, we're going to pronounce that from northern European languages as a V. So evangelical is euangelical uh, with a misread of that one character. In any case, that's a fun fact that you probably could have lived without knowing. We're hearing a lot about evangelicals these days, aren't we? And not a lot of 
Evangelion, not a lot of good news about evangelicals. And we come to church, and we're told that we're supposed to be evangelical, and the implications when we got into the world as to what that means kind of makes you want to just, I don't know, take a shower. What does it mean to be evangelical? Well, I would suggest that epiphany helps us understand how that word is intended to be. Uangelion, great news. A little measure, I would suggest, because the work of epiphany is to retrieve the world-changing joy, giving power to the good news of the gospel. I would suggest that true evangelicals, true evangelicals, are filled with joy to proclaim the epic phenomenon of Christ's life, Christ's teaching, Christ's death and resurrection and conquering death. False evangelicals rage like Herod to defend the status quo. True evangelicals, true preachers of the good news bring joy and transformation at the epiphany of knowing who Christ is. False evangelicals rage like Herod to preserve the status quo. I don't know if that's going to be helpful for you, and I'm not exactly sure if it's going to make it comfortable for you to go and tell your neighbors that you're an evangelical. (laughs) Probably not. The word has lost so much of its true meaning. But the sense has not lost its power. Remember, an epiphany changes the way you see the world by finally seeing what is really going on. And what is really going on is euphoric, joyful, great news. And that, my friends, is the gospel of the epiphany. Amen.